everybody, how are you today? My name is Taylor and this is Morbid Academy. This week I am talking about the Clutter Family Murders from 1959. You may have heard of it from Truman Capote's book In Cold Blood, which was published in 1966 it's one of the best-selling true crime novels because after researching the case, I find it interesting because I just find true crime interesting, but there's nothing like mind-blowing about the case. I mean, I have questions because we still don't know the motive behind the murders, but there was, again, nothing mind-blowing, but it is an interesting case just because I find true crime interesting. So let's get started, shall we? Herbert William Clutter, also known as Herb, was born in Kansas on May 24th, 1911. He graduated from Kansas State University in 1933, and a year later, he married Bonnie Mae Fox. Bonnie was born on January 7th, 1914 in Kansas and had three siblings. I couldn't find a lot of information on her before she and Herb were married, unfortunately. But in 1934, the couple moved to Garden City, Kansas for a few years and two years later had their first child, Ivana Marie. In 1939, the family then moved to Holcomb, Kansas and started farming, then welcomed their second child, Beverly Jean, that summer. In 1944, Bonnie gave birth to the couple's third child, Nancy May, and then their fourth and only son, Kenyon, in 1944. From all accounts, the Clutter family was extremely well-liked, very well-respected, and very active in their community. And in 1959, there were about 300 people living in Holcomb, so everybody knew everyone. People even said that Herb was the, quote, salt of the earth. At some point, Herb founded the Kansas Association of Wheat Growers, became the president of the Garden City Equity Exchange, and was the director of the Consumers Cooperative. I have no idea what any of those are, but cool. Bonnie was a member of the local garden club. Some reports had said that after the birth of her children, she had become, quote, incapacitated by clinical depression and physical ailments, end quote. But that has been largely disputed by her family. And it was a, just a complete fabrication from Capote's book. She did have, I, I believe it was chronic back pain, but the surviving members of the family and her family today say that she she was never incapacitated. She had back problems, but she that was it. She was not incapacitated. She could still do her and enjoy her day-to-day -day life. Nancy, the th third child, was well-liked and respected in the community, like the rest of her family, was in 4-H club, attended church every Sunday, and was pretty much everyone's friend. She loved baking and helping with her younger brother. And for her younger brother, Kenyon, I couldn't find any information on him at all. 
At some point, Herb established River Valley Farm, where he specialized in growing wheat and maintained a, quote, beautiful, beloved orchard of fruit trees. He also employed about 18 farmhands, all of whom reportedly admired and respected Herb for his treatment and good, and good wages. However, his success and reputation in the community would lead to his and his family's deaths. Being in a small town where everyone knew everyone, they also knew that the Clutter family was wealthy. Again, Truman Capote said that he was more wealthy than... In 1959, a man named Floyd Wells, who had worked on the River Valley farm previously, was the cellmate of Richard Hickick... Hickick? Hickok? I don't know how to say his last name. I'm just going to call him Richard. At Kansas State Prison. So, Richard Hickok. Hickok. Whatever his last name. Richard was born in 1931 in Kansas City, Kansas, and had several siblings. I put a question mark at the end of that because I couldn't find exactly how many siblings he had, if they're alive today, any of it. The only thing I got was that he had at least one younger brother who has said things about him, but that's it. So his younger brother later said that their parents, quote, provided them with a good upbringing, but they were strict, end quote. You know, it was the 1930s, so. Richard was popular in high school and an athlete, and he wanted to attend college after high school, but was unable to because his family couldn't afford it. So Richard ended up working as a mechanic. In 1950, he got into a serious car accident resulting in head injuries that rendered his face slightly lopsided and his eyes asymmetrical. Richard's younger brother said that the accident almost killed him and also changed him completely. I mean, yeah, traumatic experience like that. I, yeah, I feel like it would. As many of us know, Hospital bills are completely insane, and when Richard was released from the hospital, he was left with a mountain of bills and just buried in debt, leading him to write bad checks and gamble. Random fun fact, I actually found Richard's inmate case file online from the Kansas State Penitentiary, and it's not like somebody took the documents in it and then typed it all up. No, there's it's just pictures of the documents in it. And I just think it's really cool. It's like my own little little national treasure thing. No, he's not a national treasure, but I like old documents like that, okay? I just think it's so cool. Anyway, back to the case. In 1951, he married his first wife and had three children, but ended up having an affair with a woman named Margaret Sanders. He divorced his first wife in 1957, married Margaret, had a kid, and then Margaret divorced him. The bad checks and gambling continued, but then he started to commit theft and petty crimes. According to his case file, again, which is so cool, he committed burglary, grand larceny, fraud, violated the Dyer Act, which is to say that he committed, quote, interstate trafficking of stolen vehicles by organized thieves, end quote. AKA he stole a car and drove it across state lines. I think, I think that's what it is. Anyway, he was eventually arrested and sentenced to up to five years in Kansas State Penitentiary in 1958. While there, he met Floyd Wells 
and our next criminal, Perry Smith. Perry Edward Smith was born in 1928 in Huntington, Nevada to Flo and John Smith, who were rodeo performers. The family moved to Alaska in 1929, where John distilled whiskey. John would abuse his wife and his four kids. And in 1935, Flo left him and took the kids with her to San Francisco. Flo ended up dying when Perry was just 13 years old. And he and his siblings were sent to a Catholic orphanage where he was allegedly physically and emotionally abused for bedwetting which he had, I guess, a lifelong problem with due to malnutrition. And at one point he was sent to the Salvation Army Orphanage where a supposed caretaker, I say supposed caretaker because he had reportedly tried to drown him. So I don't think he was a real caretaker. I mean, he was employed as a caretaker, but obviously he's not a real care caretaker. You know what I mean. At some point in his adolescence, Perry reunited with his father but at the same time, I found that he joined the Merchant Marines at the age of 16. So I'm not sure exactly how long he was actually in the orphanage or when he reunited with his father or what happened to his siblings during any of this. However, the one thing that I did find concerning the father and his siblings, Perry's siblings, was that his father moved back to Nevada in the 60s and committed suicide at the age of 92. Two of the siblings committed suicide as well as young adults, and the remaining sibling, which was said to be a daughter, but again, I can't confirm or deny, that sibling eliminated all contact when, I don't know. And that's basically, that is literally all the information I have on them. So again, I'm not sure what happened concerning the siblings, either before or after the murders. But does it really matter? I don't know. Anyway, so like I said, Perry had joined the U.S. Merchant Marines at the age of 16 in 1944. The U.S. Merchant Marines is not part of the actual Marines. I guess it is a group of civilian manned ships. But then he did end up joining the army in 1948, where he served in the Korean War. And there he would spend weeks at a time in the stockades, or the stocks, which are those, they're those things that you see in like movies about old school times. Yes, I'm just calling it old school times, where there's the person in like the middle of the village in that where they have their head and their hands stuck through and they're like bent over. I'm bad at describing things. I will post a picture, just go look it up. You know what I'm talking about though. I hope you do. I'm Again, I'm bad at describing things. Anyway, he would spend weeks in there because he would get into fights with the, with civilians and other soldiers. But in spite of all of that, he was honorably discharged in 1952 and lived with an army buddy in Tacoma, Washington, where he then became a car painter. Now, what are you gonna do with your first paycheck out of the army? You're gonna buy a motorcycle, right? Well, that's what Perry did. And one day he lost control due to bad weather and landed, which landed him in the hospital for six months. The accident permanently damaged his legs and he suffered from chronic pain for the rest of his life. Now, I couldn't find 
anywhere why Perry was arrested the first time. The only thing that I did find was that he met Richard at Kansas State Penitentiary while he was serving a sentence for escaping from another prison and stealing a car. So again, not sure where he was first placed, not sure why he was arrested in the first place or how he escaped, how he was caught. I don't know any of that. Couldn't find it. We'll, we'll just use our imaginations, imaginations there. He was probably just being a dumbass as you will see that he's a dumbass. So Perry was later paroled and apparently had to leave the state and Richard started up a conversation with Floyd Wells the old farmhand of Mr. Clutter. In the summer of 1959, Wells told Richard that Herb Clutter kept a safe in his house that contained about $10,000, which is about $93,000 today. And excited about the quote, easy money, Richard wrote to Perry telling him to violate his parole, come back to Kansas and help Richard rob the Clutter family when he was released in November of 1959. And this is where it gets said. On November 14th, 1959, Perry and Richard drove 400 miles. And on their way there, they picked up gloves, a flashlight, a knife, rope, and a shotgun. The two oldest children, Beverly and Ivana, had moved out of the house at this time. Ivana was in Illinois with her husband and Beverly was studying nursing in Kansas City. On the night of November 14th, Bonnie, the mother, had moved to a different room because of her back pain instead of sleeping in her bedroom with her husband. In the early hours of November 15th, once the family was fully asleep, Perry and Richard broke into the home through a unlocked door. They somehow found where Herb was sleeping, woke him up, and demanded that he give them the safe and all the money that was in it. But then they found out that he didn't have a safe or money. Herb, they found out that Herb only did transactions by check and kept very little cash on him at any time. Perry and Richard decided to wake up the rest of the family, ransacked the house, found about $50, binoculars, and a transistor radio. But they didn't take anything else. They didn't take any of Bonnie's jewelry, any clothes, any real valuables at all. And then they decided that they were going to kill the family. The report said that that's when they decided, but they brought a shotgun and a knife with them. So I don't think that they had just decided to do it. So a few hours later, a friend of Nancy's found the family dead in their home. At 10 a.m., Garden City Police Chief Mitchell Geisler was one of the first on the scene, along with Assistant Chief Richard Rolder, who photographed the scene. One picture that was taken showed a bloody boot print that wasn't visible to the naked eye. The officers found 48-year-old Herb Clutter laying on a mattress in the basement with his hands tied behind his back and tape over his mouth. He had been stabbed, his throat was slashed, and he had been shot in the head. On a couch nearby, Kenyon, the 15-year-old son, had been bound, gagged, and shot in the head. Upstairs, Bonnie, 45, was found in one room, and it was said that she was tied differently than others, quote, with her hands in front of her so that she looked as if she was praying. 
The cord around her wrists ran down to her ankles, which were bound together, then ran on down to the bottom of the bed where it was tied to the cupboard, end quote. It said that her eyes were still open when she was found and that she was, quote, as if she was still looking at the killer because she must have had to watch him do it, end quote. And then Nancy, 16, was found in her room, bound and shot in the head. Later, Perry Smith would admit to slitting Herb's throat, saying, quote, I didn't want to harm the man. I thought he was a very nice gentleman, soft-spoken. I thought so right up to the moment I cut his throat, end quote. You didn't want to hurt him, yet you went there with all the items to kill them. So that doesn't make any sense at all. As police were starting their investigation, Perry and Richard were in Kansas City, where, because old habits are hard to break, Richard was writing bad checks. They then decided to flee to Mexico, where they lived for a short time. They then pawned the binoculars and hitchhiked their way to California, on to Omaha, Nebraska. From Omaha, they went to Iowa where they stole a car and returned to Kansas City for some reason. And then they eventually went back to Nevada where they were caught on December 31st, 1959 because they were driving the freaking stolen car from Iowa. Dumbasses. They also still had the boots that matched the print from the crime scene in their possession. Dumbasses. I mean, it's not like I want them to get to get away with it, obviously, but dumbasses. So while the two dumbasses were taking their road trip, lead investigator Alvin Dewey from the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, I cannot talk today, from the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, there I go, and his team of 18 interviewed anyone who had worked for the family, everyone who knew them, friends, schoolmates, teachers, handymen, Bonnie's doctor, and the neighbors. At the funeral, over 600 people attended, including the investigators. So during the investigation, like I had said, they had, they had discovered that one of the photos showed a bloody boot print that wasn't visible to the naked eye. All of the victims at the time were barefoot. So they're like, ha, it is the killer, obviously. But it was a common boot at the time of course so they didn't really they had nothing to go on but a couple weeks later dewey was contacted about floyd wells who was willing to talk in exchange for money and an early release and he talked then dewey heard that the two had been captured in nevada he flew out there to get their confession and they confessed i don't know how they got him to confess, but they confessed. So I'm just gonna say they sung like a freaking canary. Once they confessed, they were flown back to Kansas where they stood trial. There was a dispute as to which one shot Bonnie and Nancy. However, Dewey testified in court that Richard insisted in his confession that Perry was the one to do all four shootings. Perry first confessed that Richard killed the women, but wouldn't sign his confession. And then he claimed that he committed all four murders, but they both refused to testify in court. Again, I don't, dumbasses, whatever. On March 29th, 1960, Perry Smith and Richard Hickok, Hickok, whatever, were found guilty and sentenced to death. They were sent to death row in Leavenworth Prison in Kansas until they were hanged on April 14th, 1965. Perry's last words were, quote, 
I think it is a hell of a thing that a life has to be taken in this manner. Seriously. I say this especially because there's a great deal I could have offered society. I certainly think capital punishment is legally and morally wrong. Any apology for what I have done would be meaningless at this time. I don't have any animosities toward anyone involved in this matter. I think that is all. End quote. Seriously? A hell of a thing that a life has to be taken in this manner? You bound and gagged four people and then shot them in the head. Really? R really? And then he goes on to say that he could have offered society a lot. R Sir, I highly doubt that. Richard's last words were, quote, no, I guess I don't, end quote. Then he mentioned to one of the KBI agents that had played a major role in his arrest to come closer and said, quote, you're sending me to a better place than this, end quote. Then he added that he didn't have a grudge, shook the man's hand, and said goodbye. In December 2012, their bodies were actually exhumed in hopes of solving a 53-year-old case from Florida, where the two had fled to after the Clutter family murders. Wait a minute. I just realized that I didn't say anything about Florida before when I was talking about their little road trip. I didn't do my research right. Oh, well, well, apparently they fled after the murders to Florida where there was a murder of Cliff Walker, his wife, Christine Walker, and their two children on December 19th, 1959. Originally, Perry and Richard were questioned about it and they were given a polygraph, but they passed but we all know that that's not very reliable. And nowadays, I don't know about in 1960, not admissible in court. Officials retrieved bone fragments from their bodies to compare DNA from semen that had been found in Christine Walker's pants. In August, 2013, it was announced that, quote, they were unable to find a match between the DNA of either Smith or Hick Hickick with the samples in the Walker family murder. Only partial DNA could be retrieved, possibly due to degra degradations of the DNA samples over the decades or contamination in storage, end quote. Which doesn't prove or disprove anything, so who knows? In 2017, the Wall Street Journal found a handwritten manuscript from Richard from his time on death row titled, The High Road to Hell, okay? which allegedly shed some light on the motive, which like I had said before, it is still in dispute. He also wrote that his only regret was that Perry committed all the murders and he didn't. Ew. Richard claimed that his motive was actually a murder for hire plot. He had been hired by, he said he had been hired by a man named Roberts for $5,000. He said, quote, I was going to kill a person, maybe more than one. Could I do it? Maybe I'll back out, but I can't back out. I've taken the money. I've spent some of it. Besides, I thought I know too much, end quote. Really? If you had the money, how did you write bad checks, sir? In 1961, Richard had sent the manuscript to a reporter that promised to convert it into a book-length manuscript. Then he sent it to the publishing company Random House, who sent it back saying that they already commissioned Truman Capote to write about the Clutter family murders. I feel like they would want what the actual murderer was saying. I feel like anybody would want a book like that, creepily enough. And with that being said, one journalist believes that Richard was lying about 
everything in it or living in a fantasy in his manuscript, saying that if it were true, why not use the information to negotiate a lesser sentence? Michael Stone, a psychiatrist at Columbia University who studied Perry and Richard, said, quote, I don't believe for a minute they were paid to do it. Herbert, Bonnie, Nancy, and Kenyon Clutter are all buried in Valley View Cemetery in Garden City, Kansas. Beverly and Ivana Clutter have kept quiet about their family murders, but one of their children came forward in 2017 when a two-part documentary called The Clutter Family Murders aired. One of Herb and, Herb and Bonnie's granddaughters said, quote, with this project, we felt like it was the right time and the right venue as a documentary to get the true story out about who Robert, Bonnie, Nancy, and Kenyon Clutter were as people, not just how they died, end quote. The director of the documentary said that the family just wants the whole thing to go away, but this was an opportunity to set the record straight about who the family really is again, not just how they died. The granddaughter has said that the that Beverly and Ivana dealt with the killings and the aftermath with faith, family, and close friends, especially their faith, quote, knowing that it doesn't end here, that they're going to see them again, end quote, which just breaks my heart. Like, oh my god, you've now been living with it. It's been 61 years since 62 years almost and and in their hearts in their in their souls they believe that they're going to see them again this this tragedy was not the end yes obviously it was a tragedy but it wasn't the end again the same granddaughter said that the family is very tight-knit which was just brought closer after the murders she even says that the family makes a point to keep clutter family traditions alive. Quote, one of the letters that we have is from Grandma Bonnie, who wrote to her mother after Christmas, especially about the traditions of Christmas Eve, which we've kept and passed down and keeps going even today. Beverly Clutter married Veer Edward English on November 29, 1959, just after the murders. She has three kids and 11 grandchildren, and she wrote scrapbooks about her parents saying, quote, we want to remember our parents in a positive light, not the negative, end quote. Ivana Clutter married her first husband in 1957. He passed away in 1970. She then married William Mosier in 1980. Ivana passed away in 2019 and is survived by her son, her daughters, eight grandchildren, and many, many great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren, as well as her sister, Beverly. The sisters declined interviews and have, again, kept quiet throughout the years, stating that Truman Capote had asked for interviews for his books, for his book or articles, and that he didn't follow up on his agreement, agreement to not publish until they read the article. The sisters had or have many criticisms for the book, but they refused to go into detail. One reason being his take on Beverly's wedding that was held four days after the funeral. He literally just quoted what the announcement said from the Garden City Telegram that it was being held early because the funeral and everybody was there. 
but that wasn't it. Beverly said that, quote, the wedding allowed the family to seek a shred of happiness in a time of overwhelming sadness, end quote. This case got to me as I was writing down about the sisters and trying to be as respectful as I could, as I can be, because they have refused interviews and to talk about it. So again, I'm just trying to be very respectful. It just, the whole thing just like hurts my heart. And like I said, I'm sure that there is more information about Beverly and Havana and their families, but I'm going to respect their decision to not talk about their family in grave detail. Um, as you heard, I didn't say the daughter's name, the Herb and Bonnie's granddaughter's name, because she didn't give her name out when she was giving the interview. She didn't say which sister was her mother, any of that. So again, I'm being I'm trying to be as respectful as I can, as I try to do with any case I cover. And that is the case of the Clutter family murders. It's so sad. And again, like, why didn't you just try to rob them? Why did you have to murder them all? I hope I did the family justice, the case justice. It was heavy for me at the end when I'm talking about the sisters. I don't know why it just, it just hit me. I hope you liked the episode I always I always feel weird saying that I hope you like these episodes because it's not like I'm trying to say I hope you like the case but I guess if you like true crime you are saying that you like the case but you're not saying that you like the case you're interested in the case I'm gonna stop talking because <laughs> I'm just digging myself into a hole that I don't need to be digging myself into we don't like the case we find it interesting and that's the other thing. Like I said at the beginning, I don't get how the book is the second best selling true crime novel in history because there was nothing, nothing mind blowing about this case. Again, I never know what to say at the end of this. I hope you liked, I found it interesting. I hope you liked the way I delivered it, I guess. I, I don't know, but thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review the podcast wherever you rate and review podcasts. As always, you can find Morbid Academy wherever you listen to podcasts with new episodes out on Fridays and the videos out on Saturdays on YouTube and Facebook. If, you'd like, if you would like to listen early, get first looks, exclusives, and more, please head over to patreon.com slash morbidacademy. It would really help me out. Check out the merch at morbidacademymerch.com. Shoot me an email with your creepy stories or anything you would like me to cover to morbidacademy at gmail.com. And as always, you can follow along on Facebook and Instagram at morbidacademy. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you keep it creepy, friends. Bye-bye.